Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Over the years on Eyes on Success, we've talked with many visually impaired professionals with careers in the sciences. That doesn't always mean it's easy, but it can be done, even if you do have a visual impairment. There may be some challenges. Sometimes you may have to do things a little bit differently. And today we have another story of someone who has such a career and started off in that direction. We'll speak with Ken Silberman, who has degrees both in engineering and as a patent attorney, and has worked as both. He's now in the education department at NASA, and we will speak with him about his personal journey, as well as opportunities for the disabled to get work as an intern at NASA. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Ken. Get a good general education. A lot of students who want to go into the STEM fields concentrate just on their sciences, but if if you can't read and write well, you're not going to move along in your career because as you move on, you start writing about it more than doing it. Whether you're publishing papers or not, as a manager say, you have to communicate to your colleagues. So it's really important to get a good general education. Know your grammar. Do lots of sentence diagramming. Sorry, it stinks. But got to do it. I did it. And work hard on your math and your blindness skills are key. Work on them. Yeah. You know, you're never too old to learn and never be ashamed to admit you don't know something because you're too proud. Well, and you'll never learn it if you don't admit that you don't know it already. So that's the first step. Well, after I got my master's degree, I went through a rehab program because I realized I needed it. I thought it was really hard to swallow that, but I did. And I'm glad I did. I think that's a great tip. I mean, those communication skills are so important. I mean, you can be tremendously bright and do some great work, but if you can't communicate that to other people and pass the results of your effort along, it doesn't mean anything, and it's almost worthless. Right. So many projects are group-based, and if you can't share what you've done with the rest of the team, then it doesn't contribute to the success of the project. Right. That's so true in, in any field. And, you know, Ken also mentioned working on your blindness skills. And face it, if you're blind or visually impaired, you need to overcome the skepticism of a potential hiring manager about your abilities to get things done. And so the degree of confidence and capability you have to make things work as a blind person is crucial to getting that job. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible by the Hadley Institute for the Blind and Visually Impaired, offering the 2018 New Venture Business Competition to help blind entrepreneurs turn their ideas into actual startups. More information and submission criteria is at www.hadley.edu nvc. And by eSight electronic glasses that help the legally blind see, be mobile, and engage in activities of daily living. More information about eSight can be found online at www.everyonedeservestosee.com. And remember to let our supporters know that you heard about them on Eyes on Success.
Let's start by meeting Ken Silberman and learning how he got into science. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Silberman, and I am an engineer here at uh, Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, part of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. I'm also a registered patent attorney. Many of our listeners have visual impairments. Do you? Yes, I'm totally blind. And were you blind from birth, or was that a progressive thing? I had some residual vision, and then when I was a teenager, in like ninth grade, I lost the rest of it. And so you got interested in science at a very young age, I take it. I don't know. I mean, I had a general education through high school. Then in college, I uh, decided to go into astronomy, I guess because they discouraged me from pursuing a math career and a science career. And I always take stuff like that as a challenge. (laughs) So I was mad. So, you know. There you go. Well, sometimes it's good to present someone with a challenge, right? It gives them something to overcome and to uh, sort of aim for. I mean, I think I think I got into math and science, too, because I didn't like writing term papers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I didn't like dealing with the libraries. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. It was a nightmare. I mean, it, it, it's not that I wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that stuff was not accessible and easy to get at in those days, was it? So that was it. I figured I'd rather, at least if I just solved math equations, at least I could do it at the desk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is your role at Goddard these days? What do you do there? Right now I'm working in the education office, and I mainly recruit interns in general for our summer programs, but I specialize on interns with disabilities. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 This week's focus topic is Ken's experiences as a blind person training for and working as both an engineer and a patent attorney. And we will also talk about the program for internships at NASA that he's involved in now. So anyway, you indicated that you basically got involved in science almost as a challenge because people said it couldn't be done. How did that go for you as an undergraduate? How much resistance did you really get once you actually started taking classes? A lot of resistance. They let me enroll because they had to, but I was discouraged from it in high school. I was put in the lower math groups and uh, college. I had to do a lot of remedial makeup work. I didn't take formal classes, but I had students help me with it. You know, readers slash tutors. And that's what I did. And it was very difficult. And then when I applied to grad school in aerospace engineering, after I got in, got in, Admitted, they sent me a letter saying they didn't think they could accommodate me, and they uh, asked me to withdraw, which I refused, so they took me in. They had no choice. They had admitted me. Wow. And so what kind of accommodations had to be made? I mean, you know, I would have thought a person like yourself, who sounds pretty proactive, would go in there after getting a letter like that and saying, not only do I want to be in, but here's how I can do it. Well, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how I was going to do it. You just knew you would do it. I knew I'd try, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I were going to fail out, it would be because of me. I I, mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm going to do everything I go into. You just you figure it out as you go along. Well, that is true. Sometimes you can't anticipate right. all the issues that you'll run into. What tools did you use in graduate school? And basically, back then, I did all my math on a Braille writer. Wow, that had to be very interesting, especially when you're doing more sophisticated math. 
it was hard. And then what I would do for the test is I'd braille up my answers and my equations, and then I'd read them to a, a scribe, another graduate student, who would write them in the blue book. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh, that's so cumbersome. It is. Did they allow you extra time for your exams, having to do it that way? Yes. Oh, thank goodness. At least they had a little bit of compassion. You know, it's actually interesting. I had a similar experience, but it worked out a little different for me. When I was an undergraduate, I actually used my vision to get through school. I could hold books really closely, although my eyes weren't always reliable. I had to study at particular times. But just before starting graduate school, it turns out I lost all of my vision due to some surgery. And, you know, I sort of felt the same as you as you know, gee, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but somehow I'm going to make this work. And so I spent the summer learning Braille mathematics, and that's when I learned to use my cane. And fortunately, by the time I started grad school, after a couple of months, my vision cleared up a little bit, and I was able to start to use CCTVs, although I was, you know, I had readers also. But boy, the Braille math would have been difficult if I had to work through all the sophisticated mathematics that way. Well, I think a lot of people back then, and probably still today, they used a lot of their own symbols. And, and I, I got some books on the Nemeth Code, and I used some of that with some of my own modifications. Because I didn't get any Braille books. That wasn't going to happen. Not in any kind of timely manner. Right. This is back in 84 to 86. So I was just getting into uh, PCs. Right. And that was just about the time that refreshable Braille displays were starting to come on board, I guess. Yeah, I think the first one was like the Versa Braille in the late 70s. Yep, I had one of those. That was pretty helpful. I did a fair amount of computer programming with that. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was you couldn't get quantum mechanics and classical mechanics books on tape back then readily. And so Recording for the Blind, which is now Learning Ally, decided to record my books. But they came a few months late, so I had my graduate student colleagues offer to read books to me, and they found out how hard it was to read mathematics. <laughs> well, I didn't find the books useful at all. What I really did was I worked with readers slash tutors, I'll call it, to uh, basically teach me the information. I didn't find the classes that useful because hearing the chalk on the board wasn't very helpful. Mm-hmm. So who did you get to be your readers slash tutors? Were they other graduate students? Yes, in my department, and in, in theoretical and applied mechanics also, which was next door mm-hmm. in the engineering quad quadrangle, and we paid them through work study. So how long did it take you to sort of gain acceptance and that this could be done from the faculty and the staff, or did that never really happen? It was always a struggle. It never really happened. I had two professors who were advisors who... They had said to me, if you weren't blind, you would have no trouble with this stuff at all. So I must have had an aptitude for it, because if I hadn't, I don't think I could have gotten through it. Yeah, it's not easy, even if you're fully sighted, right? I mean, it requires a lot of work to learn that stuff. How about in the classroom? Were the professors receptive to speaking what they wrote on the board and interacting with you in a sensible manner? They tried, but it's just, it's hard to speak an equation, because you know, you have to be very precise as to where the parentheses are, where the integrals, differential signs are. That you all, have, you have to be very precise. It's just very hard to do orally. It takes a lot of practice and some training to do it correctly. Oh, I can attest to that. I've tried reading equations, and it's really hard. And I have a PhD in physics. But today, 
what you could probably do is get a lot of the folks in engineering and science use LaTeX, for example, mm. and you could probably get a lot of their notes done that way. And if you'd learned to read the code, just, just use that. And if I were doing it today, I would have submitted exams that way, too. And for people who may not be familiar with LaTeX, it's essentially a markup language or system by which you can use ordinary text to represent sophisticated mathematical expressions. And these days, there's an accessible version called LaTeX Access. Yeah, actually, what I started doing later in my career at Xerox, they were coming out with these um, programs that were capable of doing symbolic math. So the early one of those was Maxima, developed up at MIT, and you could type in x plus 2x and say what does it equal and it would come up with 3x <laughs> and it would do integrals and stuff like that and later on there were commercial versions mathematica and maple which did similar things and that's that's what i eventually started using at xerox apparently you got through graduate school okay what happened after graduate school well i went to work as a civilian with the navy in philadelphia for a couple of years programming in old basic plus two. And the whole time I was there, I applied to Goddard because I wanted to work in the space program. Again, my degree, my graduate degree was in aerospace engineering is what it was. It was not astronomy. Mm -hmm. Did you run into similar resistance to having a blind person being capable of doing these things when you were looking for these jobs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I got an interview at Goddard because I bugged the head of personnel for like two years. And he finally said, this guy wants to be here and got me in some interviews. You know, I'm really surprised that Goddard was resistant. First of all, it's part of the government. The government writes the rules, and so they have to obey their own rules. But also, my first job between college and graduate school was at NASA Goddard, and there was a blind programmer down the hall. And so they had experience working with blind programmers, and I'm especially surprised that they would have been reluctant to hire another one. And you remember... The blind people that are hired are the disabled people. They they may be accepted in their own offices, but it's a big center. Right. Your colleagues around you might know you and how capable you are, but as soon as you step outside of that little bubble, it's a very different story. Yeah. Do you think things have become any easier over the years? It sounds like you went through quite a struggle in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I think the tools are better. I think it's easier for the, to do the work. I don't think the social environment for acceptance has gotten any better. And I base that on my experiences and the fact that the unemployment rate hasn't gotten any better. Yeah. Well, I think, as you mentioned, another issue is that even at a young age, blind people aren't encouraged to go into these fields. You know, you know essentially people don't really say these opportunities are open to you if you try and you really want to do it. That's one of the reasons we do this show and interview people like yourself who have struggled through this and become successful and wound up doing what they wanted to do. Right. We're hoping that other people who want to do whatever it is, whether it's a hobby, a sport, a career, whatever, and people have been telling them that it's impossible if they hear someone like you say, well, I managed to do it, then they can say, well, it's not impossible. Obviously, this other guy did it. Maybe I can, too. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's certainly possible. It's certainly doable. As I said, the tools are better today with the adaptive technology and so forth. But they're going to have a real struggle. And I don't say that to discourage folks. I say that to be realistic. When I came out of grad school, I thought, wow, a master's from Cornell, I'm going to get hired like that. And it took like two years before I could get something. Wow. Wow. That's discouraging. 
and it's 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 just as bad today. So now you did get some sort of work with your aerospace engineering master's degree, but you also refer to yourself as a patent attorney. So I assume at some point you went back for additional training. Yeah, I thought it wasn't really working out in engineering. I was working for scientists and, you know, scientists kind of look down on engineers, so it wasn't getting promoted. So I thought I had to do something to make myself unique. And being involved in the blindness movement, I got acquainted with lawyers and uh, decided, how could I make myself special? So I decided to go to law school and become a registered patent attorney. And I passed the Maryland bar and the patent bar. And, uh, there are very, very few patent attorneys in the country. So did you get similar pushback from people when you said, I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to become a patent attorney? Or were they more accepting? Oh, yeah. The the training guy at NASA didn't want to pay for it. And I went to the center director and I put the acceptance letter on his desk. I said, I'm going to law school. I think it would be good for NASA to pay for it. If you don't want to, that's OK. I'll still go. And he, he decided to pay for it, overruling his training director. So how long did you work as a patent attorney? Well, I was in law school for four years, and it took me a couple of years to get all my credentials together after that. And then I worked for about 18 months in the uh, legal office, and uh, I had a lot of resistance there. That didn't work out. So you moved on from there. Is that how you got into your current role? After that, yeah, I decided I wanted, I was really upset, and I wanted to help other students avoid the problems I had, so I went over to the Office of Education and tried to recruit more students with disabilities. And that's what you're doing now. That's what I'm doing now. So we talked to you a couple of years ago about the program that you're helping to run now. Can you describe that program a little bit and the opportunities that are available for blind people and the disabled? Well, we don't have any internship program for students with disabilities. What I'm pushing is to integrate students with disabilities into our regular internship program. So that's why I'm doing the recruiting. And you can apply at intern.nasa.gov and you compete against students without disabilities for regular internship positions. The people who select the mentors, the engineers and scientists are screened from the uh, demographic information, race, sex, disability, that sort of thing. So they don't see any of that. The only time we bring that forward is when they accept a student as an intern, then we have to accommodate. Right. So we do ask for that data. It's voluntary on the application, but we want to collect stats on how many folks with disabilities we get, and we want to be ready to accommodate as soon as we can. So your mission basically is to make sure that the disabled community knows that these opportunities are open and that they are eligible for these opportunities. That's correct. Yeah, a lot of students think it's a program for students with disabilities and it is not. And how long do these internships last? You know, what might the experience be like for an individual who gets one of these internships? It's six weeks for high school, 10 weeks for college, and 10 weeks for grad students. And we offer internships from high school, age 16, up through postdocs. And there are stipends, and I don't know what they're going to be for 2018. But for 2017, it was $2,400 for the high school and 6000 for the college. And I think it was about 7500 for grad students. So I would anticipate it would be no less than that this year. But I don't have figures yet on, on what it's going to be. It's 40 hours a week. You have to do it on site because it's a work experience. Some students have asked, 
well, can I work from home or what if I don't live in that state? Well, you have to travel to a NASA field center. Internships are offered at all field centers. And uh, but you have to travel and you're expected to pay for your housing and your food out of uh, your stipend. So we don't provide housing. We do give recommendations. A lot of our students stay here at Goddard, for example. They'll stay in University of Maryland dorms. Oh, that just sounds like so much fun. You get interesting work with interesting colleagues during the day. You go home, you're in a dorm experience with a bunch of like-minded young people. It sounds fantastic. And this can be a great experience, not only to put on your resume, but also a way to network and meet people in the field. And networking is one of the better ways of finding a job, I would guess, these days. Yeah, well, people ask, oh, does this lead to a job? Officially, no. But if you do well at your internship and people like you, you might have a chance of getting a job a year or so later. We've had people in our program for four and five years. They keep coming back. And at Xerox, we certainly hired a lot of people that way. Um, you know, doing the internship deal is a great way for the employer to kind of pre-check out who they might want to hire or not. And sometimes what people do is they apply to internships in different fields at Goddard in different summers to try out different things. It, it's a way for you to try out these different fields in NASA as well, because sometimes people find they don't really like it. Then that's a good thing to know, too, before you spend all the time and money on an education. Right. Yeah. And both of our kids had summer jobs after their first or second year of college. And they both thought they'd go into science or engineering because, you know, that's what mom and dad did. So that was their role model. And after one round of being an intern, they both said, this is not for me. And, you know, thank goodness they figured that out so early in their college education and they could pursue something that they were more interested in. Or you just, maybe it's, you have more aptitude, too, in a different area, too. I mean, it may not just be interest. True. Is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, I hope that didn't sound too negative, but I think I need to be realistic. I hope people have had better experiences than I've had. Well, but. you know, I think it sounded honest. I think, you know, the story you told, you faced all sorts of hurdles, all sorts of obstacles, all sorts of people telling you, you can't do this because... And you know what? You succeeded in graduate school. You succeeded in law school. You had all of these various jobs. And now you're devoting your career to helping other young people who want to pursue similar interests. And I think that's a very positive message. See, one thing that really bothers me, I, I hear a lot of people, they'll say, oh, yeah, I struggle. And then it's like, everything's hunky-dory. And I'm just so well accepted and so well recognized. And I'm flying through my career and I, I don't know, that probably happens, whether you're disabled or not, I think that happens very rarely. And I find that kind of stuff kind of disingenuous. It doesn't all work out like in Hollywood, does it? No, but when I go to like these conventions and stuff and you hear people talking, that, that's the way they sound. And I guess they want to pump themselves up. I don't know. Or they're afraid to say something that people don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I always tell people, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I need to hear. A good aphorism, yeah. But that's usually not what happens. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. That's, that's true. And that's what I was trying to do, but being honest, so. Yeah, I think that's good. Mm -hmm. 
Now for this week's final item, how you can reach Ken Silberman at NASA, how you can learn more about the internship program he described, including how to apply for it, and some other useful resources for people interested in pursuing STEM careers. So if people want to find out more about these internship possibilities throughout NASA, where would you send them? What do they have to do? Go to intern.nasa.gov. That's I-N-T-E-R-N dot N-A-S-A dot G-O-V. And uh, you can go and apply there. That's It tells you you can look for internship opportunities. You can apply there. You have to fill out a basic application, then apply to specific internships. You can apply it up to 15. And it is agency-wide, not just Goddard. So it's at all our field centers, Johnson, Kennedy, Langley, Ames out in California, Armstrong at Edwards Air Force Base, so all over the place. And it sounds like these opportunities are open to people of a wide range of ages. There's no age limit. There's a minimum age of 16 because of you know parental approval and stuff like that. But there's no upper age limit at all. Great. Is there a time cutoff for when people would need to submit an application to be eligible for this year? March 1st. If anybody had any questions for you, could they contact you? Yeah, absolutely. They can write me at Kenneth, K-E-N-N-E-T-H, dot A, as in Adam, dot Silberman, S-I-L-B as in Bravo, E-R-M-A-N, at NASA.gov. Or they can call me at 301-286-9281. You talked about your training and work experience as first an aerospace engineer and then as a patent attorney. Do you know of any resources for people who might be interested in going into either of those fields? When I think about it, I could recommend for basic math skills, if you haven't gotten them, is to take courses at the Hadley Institute for the Blind and Visually Impaired at hadley.edu. And they have Nemeth code courses, basic math courses through algebra. So that's a good start. Yeah, they're a great resource because all of their educational resources are available online, so you don't have to be in the Chicago area, and it's all geared to people with visual impairments. So it's not just how do you do X, it's how do you do X with a visual impairment. Are there any other resources that you might recommend? I guess I'd recommend the American Printing House for the Blind as well, as far as Nemeth Code. They're developing, a, for example, a Snap Circuits kit where they're labeling all the uh, components and brailing the instructions so that blind folks can work on that uh, electronic circuitry independently. And as usual, all that contact information will be in our show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess. In addition, if you want to hear more about the internship program, we did an entire show on that in episode 1704, and we also talked about the Hadley Institute in episode 1543. We'll also have links to those episodes in the show notes. That's it for show number 1806. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about mainstream products that are accessible out of the box. 
No, they're not crazy. Attendees at the world's largest consumer technology convention, CES, this year were talking to appliances and vehicles. We'll speak with Eric Manser, who helped represent IBM's Accessible Ollie exhibit, about his experiences at CES and how mainstream commercial products are becoming ever more accessible. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.